Hello, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. I'd like to introduce you to our new series of audio resources, which we've developed in response to your requests for a more convenient way of accessing the high quality clinical information you've come to know from our seminars. These podcasts will feature a series of lectures given by some of the experts who have presented at our seminars. You can access these podcasts through the podcast page of the HealthEd website or via any podcast player such as Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify or Podbean. And no matter which way you choose to access the podcast, could we please ask that once you've listened to the lecture, if you could complete the feedback survey on the website, just so we know we're on the right track. My task today, my task today is to help you to understand when to think about that exotic pathogen Q fever and there are some circumstances where I'd encourage you to do that. There are also circumstances where I'd like you to think about how to prevent it and thirdly there are circumstances with prolonged illness where Q fever uh, when it's been diagnosed and even plausibly treated can result in chronic sequelae and I'd, I'd like to bring you up to speed on those. That's my goals for today. So to start off, I'm going to just... Q fever is a very Australian pathogen, as it turns out. Lots of its history is tied in with Australian microbiological history in particular. So I'm going to t briefly talk to you about that, tell you a little bit about the bug, because there's a lot of advance that's happened over the last couple of years, then move into the more clinically relevant stuff about the epidemiology, a few words about laboratory diagnosis, which is moving ahead, some of the clinical features for you to think about management, treatment strategies and prevention. That's the task for today. So the, the historical concept, like, like I was saying, is very interesting because the name Q fever actually was coined originally by Derek, who was a general practitioner who, to be honest, had a little bit of a microbiological background, but was working in Queensland and had a series of cases come to his attention of an unexplained febrile illness, five in meat workers, a couple of dairy farmers. And he said, slightly paradoxically, is this query fever? Not that he doubted there was a fever, but he just didn't know what in hell was causing it. And he got in touch with a good friend of his, that's Sir McFarlane Burnett, subsequent Nobel laureate, who early in his career did a lot of microbiological research and in particular was quite interested at that time in what we now know to be rickettsia. And he sent some samples from these patients to Burnett to see if he could get them to grow or actually to passage them in guinea pigs. And Burnett did that successfully, and in the top right image there is actually uh, some sketches done by Burnett and his team uh, looking at within the cell at these small dot-like uh, what he thought were rickettsial organisms. And actually in the bottom right you can see as time's moved on and we've been able to grow this virus now in cell-free culture, we've realised that those drawings were pretty accurate because the, the uh, electron microscopy image on the bottom right shows very similar features of these organisms living within the macrophage uh, phagocytic vacuoles. Another rather interesting uh, storyline in relation to the history of Q fever is this guy Dyer, who was an American, who recognised Burnett's role in the, rec in the discovery of the organism, 
went to the laboratory where they were studying this at, at uh, Nine Mile in the, on the east coast, west coast of the USA, actually got infected. So he's one of the very first laboratory-acquired cases, survived, and went on to become the head of the NIH. So it, was, it tested his metal, I guess is what you could say. And then a couple more recent things, again, which bring us back to Australia that's noteworthy because the well-known English-Australian microbiologist Barry Marmion is the champion, really, of the only globally distributed uh, Q-fever vaccine. Australia's the only country that's serious about this vaccine. And a couple of other noteworthy advances, as I flagged, are genomic sequencing and then cell-free culture. So the ability to grow this very fastidious organism in specialised culture medium, which has really been a great advance more recently. So what, what do we know about this organism in 2019? We know that it's an intracellular organism, as I've flagged already. It likes to live within tissue macrophages. And it's an organism that falls, we now know the sequence, and it falls within the gamma proteobacteria. And I'll show you what it, some of its relatives are. It's a very interesting organism for microbiological purposes because it's got a very uh, tough, environmentally resistant form called the small cell variant, which has got this uh, tough peptidoglycan lipid-rich uh, cell wall, which makes it extremely resistant to environmental extremes. So it's a key adaptation strategy for the organism to survive in the environment as opposed to living in the within the macrophage, within the host. And you can see in the bottom right image here that once we do grow this organism in culture, actually it adapts over days into between the initial um, small cell variant into the large cell variant that's just illustrated again in electron microscopic images there. Just a very brief word, not to scare you too much, about the genome of, uh, of the Q-fever organism of Coxiella burnetti. It's a huge genome, very complicated and actually very variable. It's only relatively recently been sequenced in its entirety. It's got a huge array of genes that are previously undiscovered in microbiology, about 2,000 proteins that it appears to encode. And its closest relative is actually not a rickettsia, it's Legionella pneumophila. And you can see that illustrated in the bottom left panels there, that it, it does have some relatives to rickettsia, but Legionella is probably the closest. And then, without going into any of the detail, it has a single very large chromosome, and it has a plasmid, which, like some, of, uh, some other bacteria, has capacity to be transferred and capacity for significant variation. And so variations in the chromosomal DNA and in the plasmid DNA are actually now, as we speak, being linked back to clinically different phenotypes. Just one small uh, forward note about that. In Australia, we've always noted that pneumonia associated with Q fever is relatively uncommon. Biochemical hepatitis is pretty common. And that appears to be a plasmid-mediated variant that's, that's more unique to Australia. So what about the rest of the world and Q fever? Well, it's more or less everywhere. There are a few countries in which allegedly it doesn't occur, but um, I definitely have had a case come to my practice who had only lived and worked as a farmer in New Zealand, so I have a, a deep suspicion that it might be there are no exceptions. In Australia... 
we are reasonably lucky that it's endemic, but it's relatively low incidence, just two per 100,000, but it does have outbreak patterns, which I'm going to illustrate to you further. It would be fair to say it's highly under-recognised, as in our, our notification scheme, as you can imagine, requires you guys, general practitioners, to recognise a potential case, undertake some serology, and then that is notified to, through the laboratory notification network. So all those patients who you don't suspect or don't test actually don't get notified. And in addition, to add another layer of complexity, there's quite a high subclinical to clinical ratio, varying between about 4 to 1 and 10 to 1. So for every overt presentation, between four and 10 others who have more mild or non-significant illness. But if I was to describe the illness, I'll, I'll talk about it further. It is an influenza-like illness with some distinguishing features. It's a zoonotic infection, Coxiella burnettii, and it has a vast array of reservoirs, both in Australia and globally. So it's, a, it's an infection to think about, particularly in rural contexts, but as I'll illustrate, the urban fringe is definitely also susceptible. In Australia, our major reservoirs are in domesticated animals. That's cattle and sheep and goats. And in those animals, the infection is largely asymptomatic. So if you talk to farmers from the bush, they'll say, oh, look, I did notice that when the herd was uh, lambing, um, that, that, that some of the amniotic fluid was pretty offensive and the miscarriage rate might go up a bit, but it's pretty subtle generally. The animals survive pretty well. And actually, there's also a large reservoir in native animals, and they are plausible transmission vectors. And across the globe, the organism has adapted to take use of local native animals, like three-toed sloths, that I think are in South America. I can't remember exactly. I'm pretty sure they are. <laughs> the organism is also found in ticks and amoebae, but from the point of view of human disease, we do not believe that these are an important vector for transmission. It's impossible to rule it out definitively, but we don't believe tick-to-human transmissions occurs. That's largely because the transmission from infected, particularly domesticated animals, is incredibly efficient, spread by aerosol. So it diminishes any notion of tick-borne transmission to insignificance. And if you look at seroprevalence, you can see in countries across the globe, up to one in four individuals living in rural regions in particular will actually be seropositive. It means they've been infected. And large proportion of domesticated livestock and similarly high proportions of native animals. So the notion of controlling in the reservoir pool is really not easily feasible. Plausibility for some uh, vaccination in domesticated livestock but actually that's not being done in Australia nor anywhere else widespread. So I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about an example of that. So what about transmission? As I flagged, this is an organism that's highly efficiently transmitted by aerosol. And it's transmitted by aerosol in particular from uh, blood and um, birth products, so the placenta and amniotic fluid, thanks so much, the placenta and amniotic fluid of pregnant animals. And um, because this agent is listed on the bioterrorist category B list, there have been estimates made of how far downwind you could plausibly infect a, what you might call a target. 
and it's recognised that a single small cell variant, spore-like uh, version of the organism, can infect a human host, so one organism, 20 kilometres downwind. So it's highly infectious. Um, and so in practice, that means any proximity to domesticated livestock, if they happen to be infected, there's a high plausibility of transmission. I've already mentioned ticks. There are a few case reports of human-to-human -human transmission. Hard to dissect that away from the potential of dust or other contaminants on work clothes, for instance, as a vehicle for transmission. I did want to just illustrate that a touch further with you with a, um, some data from a, a huge outbreak that happened in the Netherlands. So in the, in the south of the Netherlands, uh, this is a map of the Netherlands, so in the southernmost region in the bottom right there, over a period from the late 1980s towards the 2000s, they had a dramatic increase in domesticated goat uh, farming. And so that meant there was a growing proximity of the growing uh, human population to farms where our, uh, goats were being herded. And associated with that and the arrival of Q fever in those herds, there was a, a, a series of seasonal outbreaks over several years that are illustrated in the graph with I think approximately 4,000 human cases, only a small minority of whom were occupationally exposed. So the great majority were people just living in semi-rural or even uh, outer edges of, of urban environments. And it's estimated there were 40,000 actual seroconversions in that epidemic. They managed that epidemic by mass um, slaughter of goat herds and by active immunisation, at mass slaughter in particular of pregnant animals and, and of better containment measures of taking the human population further away from the goat population or perhaps the converse. One other thing closer to home is some, actually some data from my research, which dates back a couple of years to the last major drought uh, in uh, early 2000s. And I happened by chance to be doing a, a rural uh, epidemiological study in the Dubbo region in western New South Wales, and were recruiting individuals uh, with acute Q fever into that study. And what we noted is that it got very dry in the, in the drought, so the, the picture you can see at the top and the picture at the bottom are of the, the same location in uh, wet season and drought. And the maps illustrate the, uh, the century uh, extreme of drought that was, that, this, that was this particular episode and the annual variation thereof of rainfall. And what we found in relation to that, there was a very strong reciprocal relationship between the drier it got, the higher the Q fever incidence. Now that's quite paradoxical actually, because there's a lot of destocking, as you can imagine, during the drought. And yet what we found is that the incidence rose and we estimate, we don't know for sure, this related to dust, contaminated, dry environments and winds blowing the, uh, the organism into um, uh, the, prox the outer regions of the urban environments because we saw an upswing in urban populations in those same years. So in a more day-to-day -day sense, who's at risk for Q fever? This is opening the discussion about who you should think about, about as a potential uh, risk uh, case, so to speak. Well, it's all the workers in the meat and livestock industries right up there, agricultural workers, shearers, 
stockyard workers, vets, uh, uh, tanners, kangaroo shooters. And in, I'd like to flag for your attention, it's visitors to those environments. I had a patient a couple of years ago who was a young accountant who had only ever lived in urban Sydney and not travelled into the bush. Relatively unusual, that, I guess. But she took up a job in an accountant firm who had an account with a series of abattoirs. And one of her first jobs was to go out and inspect the books. Within weeks, she had acute Q fever. So uh, you can see that this is not purely a rural risk infectious disease and should be thought about in visitors to the rural environment or those on the rural urban fringe. How are you going to recognise it? Well, it's always said that Q fever is, causes a flu-like illness. What I would say about that from my clinical experience is that's definitely true, but it's actually a pretty severe flu-like illness, so it's right up there in the spectrum of severity. If I had to nominate a couple of somewhat distinguishing features, it is really um, abrupt onset. Well in the morning, crook as a dog by the evening, and it's drenching sweats, just profound drenching sweats is a, is a feature. Now, they can definitely happen in influenza, but this is a feature. Many of the other things are pretty well comparable to, to true influenza. You can have an atypical pneumonia pattern, the CRP, unlike in, uh, if you were measuring it in acute influenza, where it goes up, but generally not above 50 to 100, generally in the several hundreds in acute Q fever. Very variable chest X-ray patterns. A feature, though, that also distinguishes a bit if you were testing is this very commonly a mixed picture of biochemical hepatitis that associates with uh, uh, acute Q fever. And... Um, often runs a protracted course. We're going to talk about that. And then there are a series of rare but significant acute phase complications. So you can get a carditis, you can get heart inflammation in each of the segments of the heart, meningoencephalitis, sort of an indolent suppurative lymphadenopathy. The, the list goes on, actually, but those are some of the more common ones. What about laboratory diagnosis? Well, it's, unfortunately, it's not completely straightforward. Because although I've flagged that we now can grow this organism in culture, it's very fastidious. So it's a specialised laboratory culture skill. So in clinical practice in primary care, really it's all about serology. One of the slightly tricky things about Coxiella burnettii is that it has this small and large cell variant that I've spoken about. It also has... Um, two different phases, two different um, characteristics of the organism against which the host response is generated. And we call those phase one and phase two antigens. And so when we seek to diagnose Q fever serologically, there are anti-phase one and anti-phase two antibodies. But otherwise, the serological approach is reasonably traditional so there are IgM assays to detect antibodies against... Uh, some laboratories offer a mix of phase one, phase two antigens, so you can have a screen with an IgM assay. Sadly, though, and this is a truism actually across all infectious diseases, there is a significant false positivity rate with IgM serology, including for Q fever. So if you're worried about the, making the diagnosis accurately, which I'd encourage you generally to do so, 
you really do need acute and convalescent serology. And so in general, you'd expect the IgM to be positive early and the IgG negative, and then a couple of weeks later for an IgG seroconversion. And there are standard ELISA assays that are widely used and more reference laboratory assays that I've flagged there called immunofluorescence and complement fixation. In addition, um, it is plausible, it is possible to identify the nucleic acids of the organism by PCR in the laboratory, in specialised laboratories. Um, it's, in practice, this is mostly restricted to patients where you suspect there might be persisting infection, or it might be thought of in particular in a patient where they, you have, they have known valvular heart disease and you're worried about the valve getting seeded, getting what we call chronic localised Q fever, that I think is coming in the next slide. So PCR more specialised, but definitely available. I flagged that culture is uh, not easy to do, and we sometimes tissue biopsy in relation to chronic infection. I put this slide up just to illustrate to you one of the, in some ways, the vagaries of, of my existence, because I get a lot of calls um, from general practitioners asking about how to interpret um, Q fever serology. And one of the messages I almost invariably start with is firstly that message about false positivity of Q fever IgM assays, and secondly that there's a highly, uh, there's a very wide inter-individual variation. So that the, these individual green and blue lines you can see there, they illustrate time course of responses and their teeters effectively on the vertical axis in a whole series, hundreds of cases from the, the Dutch epidemic. And you can see there are some people who flatline down the bottom and have a, just a, a little blip, and there are others that stay elevated up to years in duration. And none of that has been shown to have clinical significance. For, for, uh, with, some, with the exception of um, the rare circumstance of what we'll call chronic localised infection that I'm going to talk about. So how high the teeter is in the acute phase, uh, I would pay little or no attention. What, so what about chronic localised Q fever? Well, we don't have an accurate estimate of the incidence, but we estimate it to be a fraction of 1% of all symptomatic cases. So it's a relatively rare event. And in general, it's an infection that evolves over weeks, months, years, even actually plausibly decades. And the, the, the prototype is chronic localised Q fever endocarditis. And that typically occurs on a pre-existing valvular abnormality. But it is recognised to occur in the bones, particularly in the thoracic vertebrae. It's also recognised in a slightly different pattern to cause an indolent chronic granulomatous hepatitis within the first six to 12 months of the following from the acute infection. We, we now have specific criteria for diagnosis of endocarditis, you know, the Duke's, classical Duke's criteria. They were specifically modified some time ago to be able to better include recognition of Q fever endocarditis as one of the manifestations, in, including with the recognition of persistent high teeter phase one uh, antibody teeters, as well as PCR detection. And one other tool that's coming to the fore 
um, it's of some interest is, is actually PET CT scanning, so positron emission tomography using deoxyglucose uh, labelling in conjunction with a CT scan. And this is uh, taken up in metabolically active inflammatory sites, also in malignant sites, but in metabolically active inflammatory sites. And it's been shown in a, in a set of case series to be of particular utility in the context of diagnosis of somewhere in the body, I think there could be chronic localised Q fever. It's more of a, a tertiary referral setting uh, investigation. And I've, uh, on my little schematic here, I've got a series of sites in which um, more common to be involved by chronic localised Q fever. So I think the take-home message for you about chronic localised Q fever is really about, okay, should I ever think about it? And what I would say to you is that you should think about it when you've had a patient who's been diagnosed with Q fever or plausibly who's just seropositive for, uh, for Q fever but has got a relapsing and remitting febrile illness that's got a course over weeks, months, years, or even occasionally decades. I've definitely seen a patient who had a, a, a bicuspid aortic valve who had 20 years of symptoms before his Q fever endocarditis was diagnosed. By that time, he had gross aortic regurge. So, so you need to think about it in, the, in some of those contexts. The other bugbear for, for a lot of general practitioners in the bush who have any patients in their practice with Q fever is, is this entity of post-Q fever fatigue. This is part of the somewhat difficult and broader brush phenomenon of chronic fatigue syndrome. But, but I guess I, what I would say to you in the first instance is to, to, I'm not sure you would do this, but if you were somewhat dismissive of the notion of chronic fatigue syndrome, um, Q fever and its persistent sequelae is a great reason why you should not be dismissive because it's absolutely clear, good data, actually partly from my own research but others elsewhere, which suggests that there are very commonly prolonged and often quite disabling symptoms that follow from acute Q fever. So people commonly just don't get better quickly and neatly. And right up on the list is bad fatigue. That means that stuff they used to be able to do, they're now getting pretty disabled by. And so the way we diagnose that is to look for other possible explanations, diagnose the original acute Q fever, and then look for chronic localised infection. And if it's not there and the symptoms are bad and there's actually no fever, just fatigue, we'd think about um, chronic uh, uh, post-Q fever fatigue syndrome. And here, the pathogen does not persist. Unlike chronic localised infection, where the pathogen persists, here it does not. This is a graph illustrating that time course I just flagged to you. So you can see there's maybe one in three people out at 12 weeks who are still unable to be back at work or school with persistent symptoms. And that actually is very similar to the time course following from acute EBV. And actually, this has no serological association. It doesn't matter what the IgM or IgG antibodies are. In people who have it or people who've recovered uneventfully, no difference in the serological pattern over time. I wanted to say just one or two words about the, the pathophysiology, the underlying disease mechanisms. And here, all, really, all I wanted to flag to you is that Q fever, Coxiella burnetti, it's an organism that contains lipopolysaccharide. Lipopolysaccharide, you know, the, the, the component of the cell wall we think about as the driver of gram-negative sepsis. 
It's the reason why people are as crook as a dog with acute Q fever, because they basically have endotoxemia. It exists in a couple of different forms that relates to how crook people get in relation to the organism, which I won't go into. But take home message, it's an LPS-containing organism and causes lots of uh, significant illness. I flagged already there's this high subclinical to clinical ratio. Some of the particular risk groups are those with pre-existing valvular lesions who might be susceptible for chronic infection. And there is interesting um, male predominance over females. And pregnant women, because the organism is tropic for the uh, placenta, appear to have particular susceptibility. When we do see granulomatous hepatitis, it's characterised by this granulomatous ring-like structure, think like TB, within the liver on biopsy. What about management? I've got a couple of slides to go here. The take-home message is doxycycline for 14 days is the recommended uh, treatment. It offers a little bit of benefit, a couple of days of shortening of illness. And for chronic localised Q fever, this is something you do in conjunction with a specialist. It's doxycycline plus plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine. There has been a study which has uh, definitively shown placebo-controlled that doxycycline has no efficacy for post-Q fever fatigue syndrome. Last couple of words about prevention. That we are lucky enough in Australia to have a highly effective vaccine developed by Barry Marmion and marketed by CSL or Securis, who's got a stool here to, at the meeting. It's a formal and inactivated version of the organism. That's the good news. It's very effective, 90% plus uh, protective efficacy, lifelong. The trouble is you, you need an antibody and a Mantu-like skin test to reliably make the diet, to, to make sure that people are not already immune because if you don't do that reliably, then the patients may be susceptible to high rates of adverse reaction from the vaccine. So an antibody and a skin test is required. If you were potentially thinking about doing that, or let me, I'll skip over this. This is data from epidemiological from a time when we did actually have a national immunisation program, which showed significant reduction in incidence associated with deployment of the, of the vaccine in that period between about 2000 and 2004. There is a thing called the Q fever registrar. So if you have a person working in the industry who gets immunised, they should get put onto the registrar. And the reason for that is there isn't an easy way to tell if the patient can't remember if they've been immunised. And this register is maintained so that anybody can look up to see whether this person has already been immunised. And there's quite a good uh, training program for vaccination, at, for, about Q fever in general, but about vaccination from the rural college, which I think is available widely. Um, and now I wanted to just summarise by saying Q fever is an emerging, as in incidence rising globally, zoonotic infection. You should think about it in people who visit the bush or come from the bush, particularly in those high-risk occupations. Acute and convalescent, so two samples if you can, get that patient to come back for a follow-up test. Doxycycline, straight up empirical therapy, warning about sunburn. 
Post-Q fever fatigue syndrome is a very common sequel, can be quite disabling, largely self-limiting natural history. Chronic localised Q fever, as in endocarditis, etc., happens but is rare. This is a vaccine-preventable infection, and so you should be encouraging those at risk to get immunised. I'd like to acknowledge a couple of the people who do some research with me, who contributed some of that data, and to leave you with a slightly humorous um, slide. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this Health Ed lecture. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to recommend this series to your friends and colleagues. And please remember to tell us what you think via the feedback link on the website. I'm Linda Calabresi on behalf of the team here at HealthEd. I look forward to joining you again next week for next week's podcast. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.